I think it's very easy for us to forget what a privilege it is uh, as Christians to be able to have God's Word before us. Even if you're not a Christian, it's, it's a pretty amazing deal to have the Bible before us. So there are 7 billion people that live in the world, and there are over 7,000 known languages, uh, what they call living languages, throughout the world of 7 billion people. Only 636 of the nearly 7,100 known languages have the entire Bible translated into their language. So 7 billion people, 7,100 languages that are living, uh, 630 have the entire Bible translated into their language. Another 1,400 or so have the New Testament translated into their language. And then there's some over 3,000 have some parts of Scripture translated into their native tongue. That leaves us with over 1.5 billion people who have never heard the Word of God. Now, there are people that are passionate about remedying this reality, at least, for pe- at least for people to hear, whether they embrace it or not, but at least for people to hear the Word of God. And one such organization that does that is Wycliffe Bible Translators. Wycliffe Bible Translators goes throughout the world and they translate the Bible into native languages. I had the privilege a few years ago of hearing a woman who was a missionary that worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators. Her name is Marilyn Laszlo, and she was sent to a small village in Papua New Guinea that was along the banks of the river. And Marilyn Laszlo moved there And she got to know the native people in this small village in Papua New Guinea. Not only did they not have the Bible translated into their language, their language had never been written, period. So she started to learn their language. And then she started to write their language. And then she started to write the New Testament, translate it into their language. This took her 20 years. And she said spontaneously, on the days, on the day in which the Bibles were going to arrive in this small village in Papua New Guinea. They came by way of canoe in boxes. And she said the indigenous tribes people in this village, after 20 years of work, lined the riverbanks and shouted in unison, here comes the Word of God. Here comes the Word of God. Stand with me this morning. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Here comes the Word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, even though he was talking to himself, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, 
for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go into peace. This is the gospel of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we pray simply this morning that you would show your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. For the next nine weeks leading to Advent, which is the first Sunday in December, we're going to be working through a series on the parables of Christ, particularly from the book of Luke. A parable is simply a story or stories that Jesus told that are allegories, that are metaphors, that seek to communicate a message. This morning's story, we find what they call an encased parable. Encased parables are often short, encased in a larger narrative. The larger narrative is Jesus, Simon, this Pharisee, and this prostitute hanging out around a dinner table. And Jesus in the middle, climactically, of this narrative encases a parable about two men who owed money. And I want us to look this morning and see what Luke 7 says would have to say to us. In the beginning, I want us to understand in an overarching way simply this. Luke 7, 36-50, God wants us to know God loves sinners. Simple. What's this passage about? I think primarily it's about this. God loving sinners. God loves sinners. Which is good. Because we are all one. Jesus says this repeatedly throughout the Gospels. He says, I did not come for the healthy, but I came for the sick. I did not come for the righteous, but I came for those who are unrighteous. I came to seek and save those or that which was lost. God loves sinners. God loves sinners who keep the law fastidiously like Simon for his own merit and worth. And God loves sinners who break the law, like this sinful woman who most scholars believe was a prostitute. The truth is, we're not the way we're supposed to be. We live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're broken. We're needy. And as much as we try to mask that, as much as we try to defend against that, as much as we have an aversion to that, there's a problem. We have a residue of guilt that pours over our soul and our minds, oftentimes at night when we lay our head on our pillow. We have a moral hangover in many ways if we're left to our own devices. So it's good news this morning from Luke 7 that God loves sinners. You see, we can be confused as Christians about what the gospel really is. Unfortunately, we by default, because we live in a merit-based society, And preachers by default because we oftentimes don't understand the most foundational, central truth in all of Scripture. When we talk about the gospel, what we end up doing is offering good advice. 
But you know the gospel is not good advice, right? You know what the gospel is, don't you? It's good news. It's good news that says you think you're bad. Cheer up. Relax. You're actually worse than you think you are. You think you're loved? You're far more loved, accepted, and forgiven in Christ than you've ever dared to dream. That's not good advice. That's good news. It's good news that God loves sinners like me and like you and like Simon and like this prostitute. Well, what do we do with this reality in this story? If the reality is that God loves sinners, what are the reactions to this reality? I see two reactions from both these people in this story. I see one of disdain. Simon, this very astute, highly respected, you know, these days we tend to throw Pharisees under the bus, and understandably so to some degree. However, biblically, Pharisees during their time in the first century were never thrown under the bus. They were amazing. People loved them. People respected them. And so from Simon, this Pharisee, how does he react to God-loving sinners? He has disdain for that reality. And then how does this prostitute react to the reality that God loves sinners? She has delight in the fact that God loves sinners. Let's look at Simon's disdain for the reality that God, and specifically Jesus, who is God, in this story, loves sinners. You can tell from the beginning that Simon is just agitated. He's just angry. He's just irritated. We don't know exactly why Simon had Jesus into his home. I started to wonder, I mean, did Simon have Jesus in his home simply from like an association standpoint to be cool for his reputation? Was Simon trying to get into like a spiritual version of 9 o'clock cotillion and he needed Jesus' vote to get there? Let's have him over, and then let's not care for him. Let's not show him hospitality. Let's speak mm, condescendingly about him. If this man were a prophet, right? He's just got this disdain about this reality of God loving this particular sinner. He also has a disdain for this woman. He looks at her really quickly and says, Doesn't he know who's touching him? I mean, in their culture, it was a big deal for a woman to touch a man, period, no matter what her profession was. And then you can imagine how much more scandalous it was for a woman who had lived the sinful life, the text tells us, to not just touch this man, but to be all over this man, kissing him, wiping his feet with her hair and with her tears. Simon's reaction is disdain. Jesus really upset religious people. Even earlier in this chapter when Jesus was, I don't know, just hanging out. Maybe at a local Jerusalem pub or something. You know, having food. Having a drink, maybe. You know what the Pharisees said about him? He's a glutton. A drunkard. And a friend of sinners. That's right. He's not a glutton, nor a drunkard. But he is a friend of sinners. And that disturbs people. One scholar said it like this. The absolutely unpardonable thing was not Jesus' concern for the sick, the cripples, the lepers, and the possessed. It was not even his partisanship for the poor. 
It's pretty acceptable to most people. Or for humble people. The real trouble was that he got involved with moral failures. With obviously irreligious and immoral people. People morally and politically suspect. So many dubious, obscure, abandoned, hopeless types on the fringe of every society. This was the real scandal. Did he really have to go this far? This attitude and practice is notably different from the general behavior of religious people. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't a religious person. Jesus was God. And He loved sinners. He loved people on the fringe of society. It reminded me um, of the movie Walk the Line. Uh, of you know, the story biographically of Johnny Cash, um, who too had a reputation of loving people on the fringe of society. Right? Why? Because he himself lived on the fringe of society. As an addict, right? You ever heard Johnny Cash sing Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails' song Hurt? I dare you to listen and watch that video and not cry. It's amazing. Johnny Cash, in this film, towards the end, after he's kind of had this rebirth, is talking to a record label. And of course, this is in the film, and you gather, I don't know if this is Thus Saith the Lord completely, but it's in the film. I like to think it's close to reality. And they're talking to him at one point. They're talking to him about his image and what's going to be going on. And, you know, they're talking as if he's not in the room and kind of what it's going to be like. And and Johnny's not real happy about their plans for him. And then at one point, this record exec looks at him. He's like, like, what's with the black? Why are you in black all the time? It's like you're going to a funeral. Johnny says, maybe I am. And then he's talking to him about the content of his music. And Johnny Cash tells the record exec, he said, all I want to do is cut a live album with the same pickers at a maximum security penitentiary. That's all I want to do. Why? Because he got letter after letter after letter of men who were in prison. You know how they sign the letters? With their name and their inmate number. And he loved it. And so he wanted to go play for them at places like Folsom Prison. The record exec in the film tells Johnny Cash this, Johnny, your fans are a bunch of church folks, Christians. They don't want to hear you singing to a bunch of murderers and rapists trying to cheer them up. You know how he responded? That they're not Christians. Because the gospel is good news for sinners. Because God loves sinners. What if the church embodied this? What if this church embodied this? Some of you have probably heard the statement before, and this seems to be pretty well documented even if we don't have the exact wording, that the religious leader Gandhi said, I like Christ. I don't like Christians. They aren't much like their Christ. A lot of people feel like Because it's easy for religious people to have disdain for the good news of the gospel, like Simon. But there is another reaction in this story about the reality that God loves sinners. And the other reaction is one of delight. 
This woman, who knew she was a sinner, didn't have a very high view of herself, was delighted in the reality that God loves sinners. You think that she had some concept of what the English playwright, whom is often mentioned by Tim Keller, if you ever listen to a Keller sermon, chances are you might have heard him talk about Dorothy Sayers, 20th century English playwright, in her play, The Man Who Was Born to Be King. And she writes this coming out of the, the mouth of Mary Magdalene about Jesus. Mary Magdalene in Dorothy Sayers' play says this about Jesus, and I think it relates very much to this woman in Luke 7. The master is the only good man I ever met who knew how it felt and how miserable it was to be bad. It was as if he got right inside you and felt all the horrible things you were doing to yourself. The master is the only good man who knew what it felt like to be miserable. Is that biblical? You ever read Hebrews? For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You feel miserable in your sin, don't you? I do too. But Jesus feels that too on our behalf because he's our high priest. And this woman felt miserable. But she had tasted something beautiful. She had tasted the gospel. And it was from the forgiveness of the gospel. We see this delight played out in a really amazing way. Look back at the text in your bulletin with me, if you will. As Jesus was reclining at the table, which is a side note, just talks about Jesus' self-security. He wasn't welcomed. He wasn't shown hospitality. and He didn't care. She comes in, climbs the table, oh, that we would all be that secure. What does this woman do? She doesn't really care either. She has one focus, Jesus. What does her focus on Christ lead her to do? Mm. Bring an alabaster flask of ointment. Scholars say it probably costs 300 denarii. You earned a denarius for a day's wages. About a year's worth of work for her, sitting in a jar. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She was drawn to him. She brought perfume to him. She was standing behind him. She was weeping. She was wiping. She was kissing. She was anointing. Why? Because she delighted in the reality that God loves sinners just like her. There's a lot of fascinating things culturally that are going on here. There's a great commentator named Kenneth Bailey uh, who you will hear more about. You'll hear more about Anthony Bourdain in the days to come and you'll hear more about Kenneth Bailey while we're in parables because he's a Mideastern scholar who is a Bible-believing Christian and he brings up all these fascinating realities because he's an expert in first century Judaism and in Middle Eastern uh, thought and culture during that time. And I could blind you with science from Kenneth Bailey at this point, but I won't. But I'll bring up one thing that he talks about. How utterly unbelievable it was for this woman to let down her hair. Culturally speaking, 
when a woman let down her hair, it was seen as synonymous with bathing with a bunch of men. I know this sounds silly, but this is true. When a woman let down her hair, it was such a big deal that a woman would not do so until her wedding night with her husband to express loyalty and intimacy. And that's exactly what this woman is doing. She's expressing loyalty and intimacy to this Savior who loves sinners. She delights in Him. And we got to ask this question. Why would she do this? Verse 47 gives us a clue. And this is very important for us to remember and for us to understand. She did this because she already had been forgiven. You see, we express love to Christ. you got to hear this. We express love to Christ not for forgiveness, that I do it good enough. That I wipe your feet clean enough. That I say the right things. Did I cry enough? Was this perfume expensive enough? Did I read my Bible enough? Did I pray enough? Did I do the right things enough? Am I a good enough parent? Am I a good enough husband? Am I a good enough wife? Oh, I'm not. I'm divorced. I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough parent. I don't read my Bible. I don't know how to pray. The gospel's not good advice. It's good news. This woman did not delight in Christ for forgiveness. This woman delighted in Christ from forgiveness. She expressed not to be loved. She expressed because she was loved. What if that's what Christianity was actually about? What if it was more about what God has done, not what you're supposed to do? It is. And this woman knew it. What if he knew that? I'll tell you this, in order to know that, we've got to preach this to ourselves every day. Every day. You never outgrow the gospel. You never outgrow the reality that God loves sinners. You know why? Because every day we wake up and guess what happens? We're sinners. Every day. The gospel's got to be our permanent street. What's Jesus' response? You see these two different reactions to this reality. The reality is that God loves sinners. One reaction is disdain, the other is delight. What is Jesus' response to the reactions? Declaration. Simon has disdain, the prostitute has delight, and Jesus has a declaration. What is Jesus' declaration in Luke 7 that comes from comfort and compassion? That comes from him telling this parable? This parable can be broken down and understood really simply. We're big sinners. Christ is a bigger Savior. We have a big debt. Christ forgives our big debt. We have big sin. God has love that is bigger. How? Because Christ became a sinner. You know that, right? How can Jesus declare the forgiveness of sins? Because when He hung on the cross, Martin Luther said, He became the greatest sinner 
there ever was. That might help in loving sinners if you became the greatest sinner on the cross there ever was. I think that would probably help you love sinners pretty well. I think it would help you to be able to empower people by declaring what He declares to this woman at the end of the story. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, points that out, so are ours, are forgiven, for she loved much. That's the deal. You got a lot of sin, you get a lot of forgiveness. You got a lot of sin, you get a lot of love. Paul Luther also said sin big, but we can talk about that later. Then those who were at the table with him began among themselves to say, Who in the world is this? Who even forgives sins? That's right. God loves sinners. What do we take away from this? The good news is this. Jerry Bridges, great author of The Discipline of Grace, says, Your bad days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your good days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. It's for Simon and a prostitute. Prostitute, never be so bad she's beyond the reach of God's grace. Simon, a religious man, never so good that he's beyond the need of God's grace. We've got to preach this gospel to ourselves every day. What else does it mean? Well, if God loves us, there is a response that is called out within us, not for forgiveness, not for love, but from forgiveness and from love. And you know how that love ought to be primarily manifested in the world? It ought to be primarily manifested in the world by our love to other people. There's a lot of different things we could say about this. But the Scripture is pretty clear. The commandment can be summarized in this. Because God loved you, love Him and love others. That's what we're trying to do as a church, by the way. Pretty simple. What's our mission? We're people that are known by God, who are seeking to know Him and make Him known to others. My favorite stories of a preacher making God known to others, bringing light into darkness, bringing the reality that God loves sinners. Is from a pretty edgy, semi-controversial man. And the longer he seems to live, the more controversial he seems to get, which... That's the way it is sometimes, I guess. His name is Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo for years preached, taught, wrote books, taught at Eastern College uh, on university faculty. But talks about years ago, and he documents this, you can look it up, in his book called The Kingdom of Heaven as a Party, which is an interesting concept, by the way, especially when we think about praying the Lord's Prayer. Essentially what we're praying in the Lord's Prayer is, let's have a party. Um, that's another discussion too. But anyway, his book is The Kingdom of Heaven's Party. And he talks about being in Honolulu, Hawaii and not adjusting very well to the time change. Uh, in Honolulu, Hawaii, it's about six or seven hours different from what he was used to. And he talks about being there on a speaking engagement and he found himself waking up in the middle of the night often. And so he kind of laid in bed for the first couple of nights. Finally, the third night, he's like, forget this. I'm getting out. You know what it's like. And he's just going to go wandering around. I'm not laying in bed. And so he stumbles into this diner, and he gets in there, and it's an interesting kind of place, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, downtown Honolulu, Hawaii, and he's sitting at the counter, and gets to know the owner, the owner's name is Harry, and they have a cup of coffee, and, you know, just kind of chewing the fat, if you will, and he said about 3.30 or so, a group of women barge in the door, kind of boisterous, loud, they just finished their night's work. Well, 
accountants, unless it's tax season, don't finish work at 3.30 in the morning. Unless you work in the ER, doctors don't finish work at 3.30 in the morning. What kind of people finish work at 3.30 in the morning? Prostitutes, right? And so he's in there, and he's in this diner at 3.30 in the morning, full of prostitutes. He and Harry just sitting there hanging out at the bar, and he's kind of eavesdropping on what's going on. And at one point, he hears one of the women speak out and says, Tomorrow is my birthday. And all the other girls start giving her a hard time, and you know, one thing leads to another. They leave, and Tony Campolo stays in there, and he leans over to the owner, Harry, the guy that's working, and he says, Do those women, who are those women? He said, oh, yeah, that's women. He said, what about the one that said it's her birthday? He said, oh, yeah, her name's Agnes. He's like, she's in here like every night. And he's like, well, hey, I got Tony Campolo, the preacher. said, I got an idea. What if tomorrow night, when they come in, we throw a birthday party? I mean, like a birthday party for Agnes. Well, Harry's super excited about this. He calls his wife from the back and he starts making a plan. Start talking about getting a cake and getting everything ready. And then they get the word out of the streets. There's going to be a party for Agnes tomorrow night at this diner. Tom rolls around, and sure enough, 3.30 in the morning, the door flings open. And here come Agnes and her crew. Boisterous, loud, and as soon as she opens the door, diner's packed, way more than usual. Everybody in unison. Happy birthday! She can't believe it. She's taken back. Then they bring the cake out from the back and they push her reluctantly to the center. And the candles are lit. And everybody starts encouraging her, Agnes, blow out the candles. Blow out the candles, Agnes. She can hardly catch a breath to be able to do it because she's never had a birthday cake before. And right when she's able to muster enough breath to blow out the candles, they about cut the cake and she says, wait a minute. Do you mind if I take this cake and go show it to my mom? Because I've never had a cake before. She leaves the diner. True story. He writes about this in the book. With the cake. And then he says, all of a sudden, I find myself in an awkward position. I'm a pastor. In a diner full of prostitutes at about 4 o'clock in the morning. And he said, I didn't really know what to do just by out of default. I led the whole diner in prayer. I said, I prayed for the city. I prayed for Agnes' salvation. And then when I said amen, Harry leaned over the counter angrily and said, wait just a minute. You didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And he said, I didn't really know what to say. So I just said the first thing that came to my mouth. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I'm convinced that's the kind of church Jesus came to establish. And I didn't plant, we didn't plant this church for it to be anything other than that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for telling us stories. We like stories.